Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Sarah Milne, author of Corporate Nature, an Insider's Ethnography of Global Conservation, published this year by University of Arizona Press. Dr. Milne, welcome to the show. Hi, Stentor. Thank you for having me on. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Okay, so I'm I'm an Australian, and I... Originally, I grew up in Melbourne and originally studied engineering, so I wasn't a clean-cut geographer from the outset, Um, but I was always interested in sustainability and the environment. So from that point, I went and worked in nature conservation projects around the world, and that was my way into geography. Um, So the project grew from my work working for Conservation International in Cambodia, and I first started there now 20 years ago. Um, But the complications of working in the field and and the big issues that came up around policy and practice in conservation drove me to go and do a PhD, and I did do my PhD in human geography um, at the University of Cambridge. And from there, I've ended up as a geographer, and I'm now a senior lecturer at the Australian National University. Okay, so to kind of set the scene here, tell us about your case study site in the Cardamom Mountains in Cambodia. Kind of what was going on there? What was the, the project by Conservation International that you were involved with and that you write about for the book? Excellent. So it's a really iconic site it's sort of an archetypal site in some ways in the sense of what the ways in which global conservation organizations operate and then how they engage in these sort of often remote often quite exotic places um, in in countries like Cambodia so the Cardamom Mountains is in southwest Cambodia near the border with Thailand so this is we're talking mainland Southeast Asia and it's it is an extremely remote area. And certainly when I started working there um, in 2002, there wasn't even a road to get from the capital down to the 
the province of Kokong, um, where most of the conservation operations were based. So you had to get a series of ferries and a boat. Over time, the infrastructure has changed dramatically and it's it's much less remote than it was. The original residents of the Cardamom Mountains are Chong Indigenous people. So they have lived there for hundreds, if not in the thousands of years. In, in the sense of Indigenous identities in Cambodia, this is usually thought about in terms of upland ethnic minority communities. There is some mixing in with Cambodian people as well. The history of the area is one of conflict. Um, it was a hideout and a kind of last refuge point for the Khmer Rouge soldiers in the late up until the late um, 1990s. Then there was uh, then there was logging. Um, people were moved around and displaced. The, the original Indigenous villages um, evacuated the area for quite some time and then they only returned in the early 2000s. So because of the turmoil, um, it actually naturally protected itself. It ended up being an area where there wasn't a huge amount of um, disturbance in terms of large-scale agricultural plantations or really big human populations that impact upon biodiversity. So that made it a really special place um, for biodiversity conservation. It was about a million hectares in total. If you think about the sort of, there were three contiguous protected areas um, and it wasn't just Conservation International that was engaged there. Um, Everything kicked off with a major grant from the Global Environment Facility, the GEF, um, through the which is sort of the co-financed conservation facility um, with the United Nations Development Program. Um, so that got things going and another NGO partner was Flora and Fauna International. Um, so you had this sort of the set of the sort of major players in global conservation all aligned around protected area management in an area that was deeply conflicted um, and, and highly complex, um, especially in terms of property relations. Yeah, one other thing I could say in terms of biodiversity values, um, people talked about this area as one of the last remaining patches of evergreen and sort of rainforest in mainland Southeast Asia. The thing about Cambodia is that it had been isolated from sort of the ravages of logging and, and other forms of, sort of rapid development that took place in Thailand and Vietnam. So, so there is a lot... You know, there was a lot of forest cover in Cambodia. It's been heavily impact over, impacted over the last 20 years, but there were quite a number of um, IUCN red-listed species, so um, critically endangered and endangered species that were there, and, th and that was really the focus um, of the conservation organisations, so Asian elephant, Siamese crocodile, Asian arowana, um, various birds, leopard cats, things like that. And then Conservation International was implementing kind of a payment for ecosystem services type of project there, right? That's right. Yeah. So so for all of the focus on protection and biodiversity, you know, that's the mainstay of, of global conservation organizations, which, which are typically run by conservation biologists. Um, the community engagement aspects were less well um, thought through, you know, that was 
social science and community engagement is always a the kind of a smaller aspect of the core business in conservation organizations. So when I went in and started working, my role was in community engagement. You know, I'm not a conservation biologist. Um, I had come from a context of working with remote um, Aboriginal communities in Australia. So I came in through that angle, sort of community development, community engagement. And there were these deep conflicts between what communities wanted inside the protected area um, and then what the conservationists wanted. And so we had to find ways to navigate these tensions between community needs, which were very much around food security and well-being. The main thing that communities wanted was to be able to practice agriculture and to access food. And as ethnic minority and Indigenous communities, they practiced upland shifting agriculture, um, which conservationists have trouble computing. Um, you know, it's a form of land use that is highly mobile. It doesn't is very rarely accompanied by formal property rights. It's a form of customary use that in Cambodia was sort of tolerated inside the, the state-owned um, forest estate. So this tension around whether people could practice shifting agriculture or not and whether that was legal or not created these conversations around, okay, so how do we work with communities? How do we get out of this conflict situation um, into some kind of brokered agreement? And so at that time, the Payments for Environmental Services model was kicking around. Um, it was very early days. There had been a, um, a highly influential paper by Paul Ferraro and Aggie Kiss called Direct Payments for Biodiversity Conservation, and that was circulated through the head office of Conservation International, and it, and it influenced the thinking of a group of um, resource economists in head office who, who built on that idea and developed it into the concept of conservation agreements. So it was rather like a, a community-level or collective payments for environmental services. Um, so you're not doing transactions with a private property owner or a single individual for the environmental services, you're negotiating with entire communities over land use plans and land use agreements. That's that's eventually what it became. Um, so these were a very a set of early examples of payments for avoided deforestation. You know, if you if you don't cut that twelve hectares of forest, then we will Conservation International will finance these other things that you need. Um, so there was, yeah, there was a, quite a lot of mutual interest in doing that. Um, but over time, it ended up being very complicated because of the underlying property rights problems and also because of issues to do with community representation and collective decision making. Because um, I think all of us who've studied community-based natural resource management or who have worked with communities know that communities aren't homogenous, single entities, that there's a lot of complexity going on inside communities as well. Yeah, it's easy to like read a paper that says, hey, we should do community-based natural resource <laughs> management. And then you go to actually try to put that into practice somewhere. And it's always way more complicated um, than the you know paper made it out to be. Absolutely. Yeah, it's always way more complicated. And often the community-based approaches are based upon logics of so the commons or common property or common pool resource management. But in the Cambodian case, local communities really had a lot of trouble in excluding outsiders and excluding others from this forest resource. 
they did not formally own it. It was held. It was considered to be state public land. So that was that was the forest you know, at that time under the um, control of the Forestry Administration. Um, and there were all kinds of um, problems with outsiders, for example, hunting gangs coming in and seeking out um, highly valued wildlife for the wildlife trade and other kinds of non-timber forest products that had value, um, like resin, um, krishna is a kind of um, fragrant, um, rotted sort of fungal piece of wood which is highly valued. So the, the forest was getting trawled, um, not by local villagers but by lots of outsiders. Um, and then sort of threats began to change as the government also became very interested in forest resources and started to use the conservation project as a vehicle to control territory and to extract timber resources as well. So, so this was not a classic um, community-controlled common pool resource at all. Um, it was, it was more like an open access regime, um, and lo- lots of contests over over property rights in different forms. Yeah, and because then your involvement with this project kind of came to an end around just like a scandal over illegal logging in this area. Can you talk a little bit about how that went down? Yeah, okay, so this is quite a big story. Um, so I started out, as I said, I started out in 2002 as a you know very young and kind of sort of idealistic NGO worker volunteer, a bit like Peace Corps. Um, was the, that was the original program that I started on. And so and Cambodia was different then. And it seemed possible at that time to actually work with communities and broker these agreements. And, and that was what then led me into my PhD, which I did from um, normally from 2005 to about 2009, which involved quite a lot of field work when I studied the conservation project. And it was at the end of that period, towards 2009, where things had really shifted um, in the experience of sort of the government and what it was doing. Um, so understanding how the illegal logging came about need is um, you can't you can't understand that without interpreting what was going on with the Cambodian state and with the political power arrangements and political settlements at that moment. So Cambodia transitioned into sort of the Cambodian People's Party, which is the ruling party, being very firmly in control by about 2009. Most of the really viable opposition had been eliminated. And with that came a much more um, assertive state. And they were assertive about um, control over forest resources and state territory. And they were less and less interested in devolving rights to local communities and less and less interested in partnering with NGOs. So I think the NGO experienced um, sort of initially having had quite a lot of autonomy um, and initially working in what was then a civil society space, the NGO experienced the closing of that space um, so that it was really hard to find actual non-government civil society spaces inside the conservation project. And, and this is when things started to go wrong. Um, so what looks like an NGO project actually became something more like a Trojan horse and, and the government or the party 
the ruling party, which controls the state apparatus, infiltrated the project and really started to sort of a bit like a string puppet, um, started to manipulate what was going on. Um, so what was nominally um, a piece of territory for global biodiversity conservation became a piece of real estate ripe for extraction um, and due to state control over resources. And so the Cambodian government has been, um, has relied upon natural resources since its outset, since the Civil War ended um, in the late 70s. Um, and then through the 1980s, this socialist period, period of Vietnamese occupation, um, the extraction of timber and land has always been um, a, a key source of finance for those who are in power. And so that hasn't actually changed. It's just shifted modalities and different legal conditions create new mechanisms for extraction. Um, but this extraction is illicit. The, the finance doesn't end up in public coffers. It usually is enriching some kind of ruling elite. So what happened in the Cardamom Mountains was that two um, tycoons became very interested in the timber in that area and in particular what they were focused on was rosewood, um, Dalbergia siamensis, so Thailand rosewood, which is a luxury timber. Um, it's People now understand more about the rosewood boom. It wasn't just Cambodia. It was it was driven by um, a Chinese appetite for luxury timber, um, sort of in some ways a problem of over sort of surplus capital and over-accumulation in China and this incredible desire for luxury goods that signals status. Um, so it was like a gold rush and it played out across the world. It wasn't just Cambodia. It was any forest that had any species of rosewood that was being targeted. No one really knew that at the time. So what happened was all of a sudden there were logging gangs turning up and extracting rosewood and this operation became more and more consolidated um, and it became, it was very powerfully backed by military actors. The tycoon involved was connected to the Prime Minister and his family. And in the end, there wasn't much that the conservation NGO could do. Um, but, you know, as a kind of well-meaning and very committed NGO worker, witnessing this was incredibly hard because um, I felt like the conservation project wasn't doing enough to call out what was basically state-orchestrated illicit logging and a really sort of high-level form of corruption. It wasn't petty bribery or petty corruption. This was, you know, abuse of state laws and authority to facilitate illicit extraction. And I believed that because the NGO had become infiltrated by the party and by state actors, the NGO was complicit in, in that illegal logging racket that took hold. So, so that's a, a kind of long summary of what took me, you know, it's years of watching and experiencing in increments, trying to figure out what's actually going on here. Um, and there was an atmosphere of fear and violence in association with this illegal logging racket. It was very hard to contest it. So I found that NGO staff working for the conservation project were quite scared of the illegal logging gangs and, and they just fell into step and they were also getting instructions from top down um, to facilitate the logging and to be compliant. So it was only a handful of staff that refused to take the bribes and refused to go along. 
And they were then pressured. They would be, their phone would be called incessantly. They would get death threats. They would feel nervous. Like it, there was a, a, a really high level of stress for those who were non-compliant with this new regime, with these new arrangements um, that supported the illegal logging. So I guess at that point I found myself teaming up with those who refused to fall into step with the this high-level illegal logging racket. Um, and in Cambodia that is a risky thing to do. Yeah, and you even mentioned there is a, an important activist who is actually killed uh, as a result of all this. Yeah, that's right. So the book opens... Um, with the story of the murder of Chut Puti. So he was one of the activists who was really working hard to expose the scale of the illegal logging that was happening, not just in the Cardamom Mountains, but in all parts of Cambodia. But in the Cardamom Mountains, I mean, um, it's hundreds of millions of US dollars. It's different um, observers have tried to estimate the the amount of money involved here. Um over the three-year period of 2009 to 2012, it looks like it was about 200 million US dollars extracted from the protected area where Conservation International was working. Um, although that's that's a undervaluation in the sense that by the time that timber gets to Vietnam or China for on trading, it's worth ten times more. I mean, it is it is this is it was five thousand US dollars per cubic meter. But by the time it got to the border, it was double that. So, so there was just there was just so much cash washing around. So Chudbuti was an activist who knew all of this extremely well. He had formerly worked for Conservation International in in the Cardamom Mountains, and then he left and formed his own NGO, the Natural Resources Protection Group. And there was a fearlessness about him. Um, he was a fascinating character. He had been in fact, educated in Russia and was KGB trained. And he had worked as a soldier um, up until Conservation International arrived in Cambodia, at which point he moved across. Um, and indeed, he was one of the old, he'd, he'd been a translator and a kind of right-hand man for the first country director that Conservation International hired um, in the Cardamom Mountains um, retired Colonel David Mead, who was a Vietnam War veteran, and he was the one that handpicked Chut Wuti from that military milieu in his former role, because David Mead was the de former defence attaché um, for Australia to Cambodia. So they came from a military diplomatic space into the conservation space. Um, so Chut Wuti um, was getting more and more bold, trying to mobilise local communities in the Prey Long area, and there is a there's a great documentary for those who are interested in more about his life. Um, I am Chutwuti, made by Fran Lambrick, um, who was a PhD student at the time, witnessing Wuti's work in Prelong. Anyway, so I connected to Wuti more through what was going on in the Cardamom Mountains. Wuti knew all of the he knew everybody. He knew what how much money was moving and who was involved. And he had nine mobile phones. He was constantly looking over his back. Um, he was, he'd had so many death threats. It was kind of, he, he began to shrug it off. Um, and he's, anyway, so the day that he was murdered, he 
was with two journalists and he was driving through the Cardamon Mountains um, to try to get data and take photographs of some of the illegal logging compounds um, in the area, illegal, illegal timber but also illegal yellow vine, which was a, a non-timber forest product, which again was highly sought after. It's thought to be an ingredient in Asian ecstasy in, in Yaba. So there was kind of all kinds of illicit activity going on. Um, so he wanted to gather evidence about this and he stopped at, at one of the compounds just south of the ranger station in the northern part of the protected area, in, which is called Osaum. And it was there that there was a, a, an altercation between him and some soldiers and it was there that he was murdered um, in, in broad daylight. And there's never been a trial. There was no justice for Chutal Tea. So it's as an opening problem, it, it works in the book because we need to ask the question, sort of why is it that Cambodia's most prominent environmental activist who's really trying hard to stop illegal logging, why is he being murdered inside a, a high-profile global conservation project? What, what's going on here? Um, how, how does this scenario arise? So, so the book in part tries to explain how we got to that point, um, which was really horrific. Um, and then it also, I mean, part of the other problematic thing is was watching how Conservation International responded to the murder of Chudwati, which was not to acknowledge his work and praise his efforts to stop illegal logging. It was about denial because Conservation International was not at that time prepared to acknowledge the extent of the illegal logging that was taking place inside the project. So you had this kind of form of institutional violence that emerged around the treatment of, of Chudwati um, after after he died. Um, so I also found that really horrific. It was a very emotional time um, for all of us because we were all sort of caught up in this, in this big struggle. Um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Yeah, you're, you're losing someone that's so important and it's like not even being recognized by the people that ought to care the most about that. Yeah, the people whose business is to save biodiversity and nature and are not actually connecting the dots and they're not publicly acknowledging um, the, the motivation for the, the assassination of Triple T. And so there's, in, there's the emotion in the heat of the moment. I remember feeling very angry about that. But in, in retrospect, I can also see the game that Conservation International was playing. It doesn't excuse them, but they were having to operate in a political environment where they needed to maintain a relationship with the Cambodian government in order to maintain their seat at the table. So they wanted to continue to manage this protected area. You know, they had lots of grants. They had a trust fund. There was a lot of careers and egos and, and, and marketing attached to this project. Um, it was good business. But in order to do the business, 
they had to maintain this really problematic relationship with a state that was orchestrating illicit logging. So, so they were really caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, and this is where you get really deep ethical dilemmas that, that all conservation NGOs somehow need to navigate. I think the Cambodian case is quite um, extreme, but there are so many shades of green. I mean, there are so many versions of this story in other countries in the global south. I mean, we've just been hearing this year the case against WWF and the alleged human rights abuses um, on behalf of park rangers hired by WWF. And and those abuses have occurred in post-conflict countries where violence is endemic. And so when you bring a global conservation organisation sort of into some kind of partnership with these underlying conditions, you get forms of violence. And so the job of scholars is to somehow expose and document how those forms of violence arise and then how to hold to account the big international NGOs that are financing this. It's not enough just to say, oh, it's messy or oh, we contracted them out, we contracted it or we have to maintain our partnership. There are actually very real ethical problems with operating in these contexts that need to be brought to light and discussed in, in a more open way, I think. Yes, that makes, I think, a good transition into another question that I wanted to ask, which is that, you know, you point out that organizations like Conservation International, World Wildlife, you know, these other big international uh, organizations have this corporate organizational structure. And you say that's one of the reasons that they're, you know, playing the game that they're playing and get the kind of outcomes that come about from their project. So could you say a little more about that organizational structure and how that influences the work that they do? Yeah, great. So the book is called Corporate Nature and, and I've kind of set that up as sort of a reference to organizational culture inside big international NGOs. But I'm also calling it a kind of socio-nature that emerges from the work that they do. Um, so so they are rather corporate in structure. There is a, a need for organisational coherence and, and there is a need for branding and identity. So usually there is a, a headquarters. Um, you know, in the case of the American big international NGOs, most of the time that's in the, the Washington, D.C. area, um, if not then in New York. And then in so in headquarters you have... Um, the intellectuals and the masterminds of, of and, and those who are seeking the funding to finance the operation. They come up with the silver bullets, the fixes, the panaceas, these big policy ideas that will then be rolled out across the globe. So rather like a multinational company, they come up with a, a kind of a corporate product, which is the policy idea or the policy fix, and then they find ways to roll that out or scale it up um, Oftentimes they're operating in 30 or 40 countries around the world. Um, they, they operate in countries where there is high biodiversity, um, sort of high ecosystem and sort of global values um, for, for nature and high threat. So, so where countries themselves can't necessarily manage or finance conservation activities. So they, they find their role in partnering and operating in 
countries of the global south. So, so there is a top-down structure, and it it's hard because you know conservation is tragically underfinanced in many ways. I mean, we're living in a world in which biodiversity and, and climate and ecosystems are not appropriately valued in in the mainstream economic system. So the NGOs, um, you know, they don't have a tax base you know they're not connected to governments per se they're not they're not formally financed through states to protect public goods they need to garner their funding from other sources so they must rely upon um, donors and and sometimes it could be a, a bilateral aid donor like USAID sometimes it's a multilateral development bank um, like the World Bank or the GEF the Global Environment Facility and sometimes it's a private philanthropic foundation like the MacArthur Foundation, um, for example. But in a climate and in an atmosphere of being starved of funding to do this important work, um, they need to look squeaky clean, they need to look good, and they need to market success. So the whole enterprise eventually ends up being about your ability to demonstrate success and solutions and coherence. Um, so that creates a set of institutional conditions um, in which the messiness of practice on the ground and the terrible dilemmas that, that conservation organisations face on the ground aren't, aren't properly dealt with. There's absolutely no organisational incentive to expose, in fact, how hard it is to do conservation in places like Cambodia. Um, so... So there is a kind of, there is a corporate dynamic um, and a tendency to simplify when it comes to um, what's actually very messy in the field. Um, and I talk about it in terms of dissonance in some ways. There's a kind of cognitive dissonance. So on the one hand, the institutional settings call for success and celebration of, of nature and, and achievement. And then on the other hand, there's this kind of internal private knowledge for those who are operating on the ground that this is really hard work. Um, so, so it's a, a dissonance or a, um, an organisational hypocrisy to draw on the work of Catherine Weaver that's sort of hardwired into the enterprise as well. Yeah, as I was reading some of the stuff you were saying about the way they have to market and, and do this branding, I was just thinking about how I get Facebook ads from a number of these kind of organizations showing up on my social media. And it really is such a sort of sanitized image of, you know, here's how we're saving nature. So, you know, donate money to us. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and there are some... Um... Fantastic geographers writing about this. Um, I mean, I didn't spend a huge amount of time analysing um, the branding tactics, but um, Professor Jim Ego, for example, you know, he's written about the spectacle um, of, of conservation practice, that so often in conservation what we're consuming are, are ideas and images about nature or about wildness. Um, there is a... There are these dynamics of social production um, and, yeah, and commodification, which can underpin and drive <clears throat> a lot of the branding. So, so I, we do need to get real. We've got to get back right down to the ground and ask some really hard questions about what conservation is when it actually hits the ground. Yeah. 
Right. And you, you talk about this as kind of the problem with the, the classic slogan of think globally, act locally, that kind of thinking only globally is kind of part of the problem here. That's right. And so a core problem that I look at in the book is, is this global solution, the idea of a global solution. Um, so those of us who are trained in Western traditions in disciplines like sort of conservation biology, ecology, economics, there is this desire to abstract and to build general models and theories um, about how the world works. Um, so when you put sort of biologists and economists in a room together and you ask them to develop conservation solutions, that that's how they think. That's how they're trained to think in terms of a global general theory of change and a policy model that is going to be rolled out in, in different places. But, but because of the thinking, which is not context sensitive and not place based, there's an epistemology that comes with that. Um, it's not just positivist, it's also reductionist. You know, there is a really deep tendency to simplify. Um, and that's the problem with global thinking. So when you make a, a general global policy model, the assumption so often is that this policy model works as a treatment and you can apply it in different places as though you're applying it. It's a, it's a medicine that get applied, gets applied to different patients. And so they've actually used this kind of clinical economics or the medical analogy, um, the clinical approach sort of, of treatment and trial and control to, to um, underpin some of the logics in conservation intervention. Um, and I think oftentimes that is really fundamentally flawed because what they're not recognising is the way in which their general policy idea, their tool or their fix, is getting transformed through local processes and endemic conditions and so often it transforms into something else, something that's actually unrecognisable. But if you're trained to simplify and if you're trained to think in terms of simple models, then oftentimes you don't have the skill set or the knowledge base to recognise the ways in which your, your global solution has come unstuck. You know, if you don't speak the local language, if you don't have relationships with local communities to find out what's actually going on in the field as opposed to what people might tell you, you know, they often, oftentimes the only information you get is what villagers think you want to hear. Um, so if you don't actually have really deep, connected, grounded relationships and you, if you're not tapping into other kinds of knowledge, so for example, other disciplines, sort of anthropological approaches, ethnographic approaches and Indigenous and local knowledges, if you're not able to access that and those perspectives on what's happening to the project, then you actually can't make sense of, of what this intervention is doing. Um, so that's what's wrong with global thinking. Um, the long answer to your question. <laughs> no, that's that's yeah. great. So it's a big it's a big epistemological challenge. It's it's sort of how do we build solutions that use other forms of knowledge? How do we prize open the conservation business models so that there's space for multiple multiple kinds of knowledge and that we get all able to listen to each other? That's the kind of foundational problem. Yeah. And how do we do that without like use local knowledge becoming the next like blueprint that we just apply everywhere? That's right. How do we do that in a way that's, yeah, local knowledge is not the next panacea or the next fix. Um, and, you know, we, 
and that's kind of happening, you know, this appropriation of traditional ecological knowledge. It's so easy to, to globalise and generalise that concept as well. Um, you know, maybe, it's, maybe there's a problem of infinite regress here, but there's really sort of no substitute for long-term deep engagements with people in place. Um, so yeah. quite apart from any policy model. And I, I guess, you know, the dream scenario is that donors would recognise that. Um, so donors cease to ask for the next fix or the next great idea. But how can you sustain financing for conservation and support that, that enables these local approaches to flourish? And, and it's not always going to be successful. It's not always going to work. Um, but there has to be some commitment to place somewhere. Um, yeah. 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 So, <laughs> the book that the, you know, you're writing about something that you were personally really deeply involved in. Um, how has writing this book changed your relationships with, you know, your former colleagues at Conservation International, with the people in Cambodia that you worked with when you were there? You know, how have they reacted to you writing and publishing this book oh it's it's so i'm still remain in touch with dear cambodian colleagues and other colleagues in conservation so so um yeah those relationships have stood the test of time um in some ways you know i mean this is a scholarly book so the extent to which cambodian ngo workers are going to read it um, or Cambodian conservationists are going to read it is is an interesting question, and I'm trying to think about ways to launch the book in Cambodia um, in a way that is appropriate for those audiences. And so yeah, I'm certainly in dialogue with local colleagues there. Um, not everyone is going to like this book, and it's it's only so recently released that I'm not entirely sure yet how, for example, former NGO colleagues are going to respond. Um, that might have to be a follow-up question. Okay. Yeah. Um, I hope they will understand the motivation. I. It's not to tear them apart and I don't want to be, I've, I've tried to write the book with empathy for what their jobs are and I think this is a space for more research actually. Um so it's so easy as sort of certainly critical geographers of conservation have done a lot of critique from the sidelines. It's easy to stand and point out what's wrong with conservation projects, but that's that's too easy. So how do you build a sort of connection with those who are in those impossible jobs where you're, you know, you've got a donor saying to you, roll out payments for environmental services in 10 countries? <laughs> Your day-to-day life is sort of carved up with insane amounts of sort of admin and Skype calls, community meetings, impossible lack of data about what's going on in the field. You don't, you're never going to have sufficient knowledge. You're never going to be able to navigate local political dynamics, which, you know, in places like Cambodia can be quite sinister and quite predatory. Um, and, and, you know, as an NGO, you're just trying to survive and keep your head above water. Um, so... For me, I hope that what what readers will feel, though, you know, those in conservation NGOs, I hope they feel a sense of empathy. You know, I've been in that hot seat. Like, I do understand that you're being asked to do the impossible. So how can we prize it open? How can we have more conversations? 
um, about about conservation practice. Yeah. Yeah. And so then from kind of a, a personal point of view, I wanted to ask you, uh, so I teach a lot of environmental studies and environmental science majors and mm -hmm. jobs that big NGOs like Conservation International are one of kind of the obvious career paths that mm -hmm. a lot of them are looking at. So what would you say to young people that, you know, want to find a career making a difference in environmental sustainability um, where this is kind of one of the obvious ways that they could go and pay the bills and so forth? Yeah, I mean, it is a, it is a professional path. I mean, they talk about the sort of the professionalization of, of activism. Um, I think there's no denying that that's what it is. And, and I was that person too. You know, I made a living from working for conservation NGOs for quite a long time and and you should be allowed to live with some dignity like you should be allowed to pay the rent and and put all of your energies into um, finding ways to navigate what is now a global ecological crisis you know, if, if only all of our best capacities could get directed into this work so I, I would say don't hold back go in there but but reflect upon what the organization does to you and, and reflect upon your everyday practices. So there are going to be these unbelievably tricky moments of dilemma or compromise. As a conservationist, how do you, or as a, as a social scientist working in conservation, how are you going to navigate that? And, and if you are uncomfortable about compromises that are being made, how do you raise that with those who are more powerful, how do you raise that with the board, with your boss, with the country director? Um, how do we have conversations um, about the compromises and the dilemmas? Um, so I guess if we have a, a new generation of conservationists that are also skilled up in um, not just being good professionals but being you know, thinking individuals who have an ethical set of concerns and who are, who are educated in that, the ethics of practice, then we're going to get conservation that looks a lot better. So, so we need you and we need everybody's absolutely best efforts, but, um, but let's try and evolve the enterprise in, into something else. <laughs> that would be my advice. That's, yeah. that's, I think good advice for anybody going to work for any institution um, right it's not just NGOs it's kind of it's everywhere and we can say the same for universities um, yeah oh definitely um, <laughs> so as we're moving towards the end of our time here I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book oh that's really lovely yeah this book rests upon so many the shoulders of many um, I have been I mean, the people that saved me at the very beginning, I think of other kind colleagues, you know, in Conservation International who believed me when I was um, calling out the trouble with the illegal logging, the ones who, who stood by my side. So Eddie Neeston is someone who I will always respect and same with Jake Brunner, you know, these, just to be recognised as someone who um, was trying to do their best under difficult circumstances is important um, when other parts of the institution are trying to take you down. Um, it's, it's good to have allies. Um, back at the university, at the Australian National University, 
most of the writing happened um, at, in my office in Australia, removed from Cambodia. Um, so key colleagues there gave me the time and the space to do this work, particularly Professor Sango Mahanti, who's been an incredible support. Um, I should say the Wena Gren Foundation also gave me a writing grant at the very beginning of the book writing journey. Um, that was a, a Hunt postdoctoral fellowship and I'm incredibly grateful to them as well because that made the book seem possible. Um, and it, it was a time when I was precariously employed. You know, these academic jobs are hard to get and sometimes it takes a, a long time to navigate out of postdoctoral or sort of precarious postdoctoral life into something more viable. So under those conditions, the Werner Grand Foundation provided really vital support. Okay. And finally, we always like to end by asking what you're working on next. What kind of projects mm. are you taking up now that this book is out? Well, the book ends with this kind of thought experiment um, around, you know, if if we don't like corporate nature, if we, if we don't like these NGOs that, you know, are dominated by technical thinking and technical hubris and that are, you know, preferred to be ignorant rather than engaged with complexity and, and often behave unethically, then sort of how do we do this better is, is the question. And, and we do it, you know, we talked a little bit about an ethics of practice um, practices that create space for multiple kinds of knowledge, practices that are grounded in humility and respect, respect for human beings and non-human beings. So I guess that takes me into a space of, sort of thinking about alternative models for conservation. And I'm from Australia and um, there is there are some really amazing examples of different conservation models that are emerging here in the Australian setting. And in part, that's because First Nations people do control quite a lot of land, land here. A lot of them have their original territories um, in place and or they are involved in joint management protected areas. So we're seeing a really um, inspiring um, decolonial and relational turn in the way that um, looking after nature is thought about. Um, so my next phase in the work is to understand more and to articulate more what what are these winning solutions and, and how do we support them. Solutions is not a word I wanted to, to use. <laughs> Let's say winning approaches. What are the what are the really good inspiring examples that are out there from which we can learn? So that that would be part of my next research agenda, working more in the Australian setting. All right. Well, that sounds great. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. This has been a conversation with Sarah Milne, author of Corporate Nature, an insider's ethnography of global conservation, published this year by University of Arizona Press. Mm -hmm.